going to have you turn to 2 Kings 18 in your Bibles. I'm sorry to spring this on you, that if you didn't bring your Bible today, you'll have to just listen along and then pick one up from the back table at the back. Um, But before we get into that, I'm going to have Carl read it for us in just one second. But I'd like to propose to you that there are really only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are Yankees fans and those who are not. Okay? You ever heard a saying like that before? Right? Or the one that I grew up on was, there's really only two kinds of people in the world, those who are Dutch and everyone else. Okay? You know, you hear people say things like this from time to time, usually just in jest, of course. But at the heart of a statement like this is this implication that there are those who are right and there are those who are wrong. And generally the idea is everyone who sees things like I do is right. And everyone, and usually that's a minority of people, maybe sometimes only one person. And everyone who uh, disagrees or sees things differently is foolishly wrong. And usually that is quite literally everybody else, okay? Uh, well, today I'd like us to look at two kinds of people as described for us in 2 Kings 18. So I'm going to have Carl read verses 1 through 12 for us. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Allah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke the pieces of the bronze serpent that Moses had had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from the following of him, but kept his commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord was with him whenever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territories from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Allah, king of Israel, or king of Israel, Shalmanser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years he took it, in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel. Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria called the Israel, carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the Habar, the river of, of Gozan, in the cities of Medes. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenants, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. Thanks, Carl. Trial by fire. I gave him like all the hard names from the Old Testament in one passage there. Shalmaneser especially. That's a tricky one. Um, So what we have here are two descriptive snapshots side by side, okay? And I've got a couple slides for you this morning because I'm like, if I'm not going to do notes, there are a couple things that I I still want to highlight. So I'm going to throw some of these up there, okay? There's Israel, which is the northern kingdom. Hopefully you can see these. And then there's Judah, the southern kingdom. And if you've been hanging around Maricopa Springs, you know that we've been going through the history of Israel. And one of the things we've looked at is how the kingdom was split in two. So you had Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And I believe there's a reason why these two little descriptions here are given side by side. 
to help us see that there are two kinds of people according to the Old Testament of the Bible. Okay? And we're going to first talk about the second half, verses 9 through 12, and then we're going to come back to verses 1 through 8. Okay, that helps you kind of di- differentiate between the two. What we see in verses 9 through 12 is that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, uh, is attacking the northern kingdom of Israel. And Assyria was northeast of Israel in what is today Syria and Iraq, which maybe you've Googled that recently in maps because of everything that's going on over there. I've got a map for you. Um, You can ignore most of the lines, except I'll highlight one in just a second here. But the the passage says that Shalmaneser besieged the capital city of Samaria, and after three years he captured it. Okay, This puts uh, Israel real small on the map there, but you can see Jerusalem in the south and Samaria kind of in the north, or compared to each other at least. Uh, and, And after taking the city of Samaria... Shalmaneser engaged in a military political action that was becoming more and more common in, in ancient conquests, okay? Rather than raise up a puppet king, maybe either from, from his kingdom or from within Israel or Samaria, rather than raise up a puppet king to control these new lands, who would eventually get overthrown by the rioting people anyway, Shalmaneser decided to relocate or move a vast portion of the kingdom of Israel, the population there, back to the cities within his empire. And when those cities of Israel are emptied, he brings in people from Assyria to live in their homes. Okay, Now if you see that middle blue line that says Israel that kind of goes up, you see some of the names of the towns that Carl read. Habor and Hala and Hara. Gozan, the river Gozan, okay? So he moved the people out of Israel and replaced them with people from Assyria. Which is a genius plan if your goal is to be evil dictator of vast portions of the world, okay? You can posit this in your back pocket just in case you decide to pursue that route someday for your life. The biggest obstacle for your success in a campaign to conquer the world is that as soon as you conquer the people in this region and you move your armies on to the next region to conquer them, then the people that you just left behind rise up in riots and anger and they kill your agent in charge and they reestablish their own kingdom because it's all the same people that you just worked hard to conquer, right? But if you haul everybody out of their homes and you relocate them to a part of your home country and you give away their land and their homes for free to your own citizens, then you've got a whole bunch of people in both places who have mixed up identities and they have no shared common sense of nationalism, which is a big problem if you're trying to conquer the world, right? So imagine it like this. Imagine if you took half the people in Texas and you traded them with half the people in Arizona Everybody would be very confused. Okay? Now, we all know that this is just an analogy because Texas, they would never let us do that. But, but the types of questions that come to mind are, you know, what sports teams would we cheer for? Would we talk with a southern accent here in Arizona or not? You know, would we add a second t- star to the Texas flag and call us the, the Dose Star State? Could we still call it Texas Toast? You know, would we have to start saying everything is bigger in Texasona? Those types of questions, right? There would be this muddled identity. Well, in Bible terms, we call this military political move captivity. The people of Israel were carted off into captivity. But essentially what happens is these people begin to develop a whole new identity, 
which in this case is no longer Israelite. It's this pseudo half Assyrian, half Israelite kind of jumble. Okay? And that's the effect of the conquest of Israel by Shalmaneser, and it works swimmingly. Okay? After a couple of rounds of this kind of displacement throughout the history of Israel, the northern kingdoms of Israel, or the northern kingdom of Israel, is so confused that it basically disappears from the face of the earth. Okay? Because their assimilation into first Assyria and then Babylon a couple hundred years later, over the course of a couple hundred years, just totally eradicates their individual identity. Okay? Which is why in the New Testament... These people are called Samaritans. Does that name sound familiar? You know the story of the good Samaritan? Well, they're called Samaritans and they're despised by true Israelites from Judah because of this mixed identity. They've lost their Jewish identity. Okay? It's just something for you to know as you read the New Testament. But what I really want you to see here is the cause of the captivity, which is the most important thing here. Okay? Verse 12 tells us why Shalmaneser was able to conquer the, the people of God in the northern kingdom of Israel. Because he was God's agent to bring judgment on them for their godlessness and disobedience. It says, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. And so God raised up Assyria to come in and destroy Israel because Israel had become irreligious. They neither obeyed God nor listened to him. I've got another slide. Oh, it's up there. You guys are awesome. And the writer of 2 Kings wants us to see the, the consequences of their behavior, their irreligious behavior. Okay? If you can remember all the way back to the exodus of Israel from Egypt, which was months ago now in our epic series, God and his people had a very specific contractual agreement called a covenant. A covenant. And it was entered into at Mount Sinai outside of Egypt and reaffirmed several times throughout the history of Israel as they came into the promised land and conquered the promised land and became established there with the temple. And it went like this. Israel would obey God and for their obedience, God would bless them protect them, send rain, make sure that they had crops and food. He would pour out his blessings upon them. And if they turned from God and they broke their covenant, their promise to be obedient to him, then he would discipline them and even destroy them for their disobedience. And that's exactly what we see here. So there were two options available to the people of Israel. Option one, uh, in these two kinds of people, is be obedient to God and find his blessings or be disobedient and have curses come from God. Okay? The first of these two kinds of people then is represented by the northern kingdom of Israel. And they're the irreligious types, the types who decide, we don't want to be obedient to the covenant anymore. We want to turn our backs on God. And they are the people who have no regard for God. And, and what the Bible says again and again and again in these history books in the Old Testament is, they did what was right in their own eyes. Okay? Those are the irreligious people. But we also have here in 2 Kings 18, the other kind of people, the people who obey God religiously. And they're represented by King Hezekiah and Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. Okay? What did Hezekiah do in contrast to irreligious Israel? Let me read it for you, verses 3 through 7. 
It says, And he, which is Hezekiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places, and he broke down the pillars, and he cut down the Asherah, all the places where idolatry was going on. He destroyed them. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And, and according to the covenant, the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. Okay? So Hezekiah was a good king. He obeyed God and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. I think we've got that up there. Good. He looked at the devastation that Israel had suffered under his father Ahaz, who was a godless king, a king of full of idolatry, who did evil in the sight of God. And Hezekiah looked at it and, and he decided, I don't want to be anything like that. And he worked to bring godly reforms to the kingdom of Judah. And Hezekiah was a very religious man, unlike his irreligious neighbors in the north, Israel, who were destroyed by Assyria for their disobedience. Okay? Hezekiah feared the Lord, and he worked hard to rid the land of idolatry. He understood the terms of the covenant, which again were this. Do evil and disobey God, and God will smite you for your bad behavior. Do good and obey God, and God will bless you for your good behavior. And verse 7 affirms it. And the Lord was with Hezekiah. Wherever he went out, he prospered. That is, because of his religious commitment to God and the covenant, God blessed him. So the author of 2 Kings puts these two stories side by side to show us that there are two kinds of people. Irreligious people who turn their back on God and suffer his wrath and religious people who obey God and prosper because of their obedience, okay? Now, what I think is really interesting about this picture, and I see some of you, you're looking at me like, what happened to you this week, Grady? Here's what I think is really interesting about this contrast. There are still a lot of people who think that this is how God still interacts with his people, with Christians, there are a lot of people who follow Jesus and think that this is still how God works among his people. As if we lived under the old covenant of the Old Testament. As if Jesus had never come and brought grace into our lives. And it sounds like this. If I'm really, really good, then God will be happy with me and he will give me things. Now before you laugh too hard, think about your own motives. Have you ever had a perspective of God, something similar to that? If I'm really, really good, then God will be happy with me and he will give me things. He'll answer my prayers. And if I'm bad, then God will smite me and he'll make my life miserable and I will suffer. But that's not right, is it? That's not how the new covenant works. Are there only these two kinds of people, religious people and irreligious people? And if we only had the Old Testament, then I would stand up here and I would tell you, yes, if we still lived under the old covenant that God made with his people Israel, then this would be an accurate statement. But it's not because we have a new covenant. We have the New Testament. We have the blood of Jesus, which was shed on our behalf to give us a new kind of relationship with God. 
And as a result of the work of Christ on the cross, we live in, under new terms in our relationship with God. To paraphrase Hebrews 8.13, we're told that because there is a new covenant, new terms for our relationship with God, the old terms have become obsolete. They've become obsolete. The old terms of relating to God have been traded in for new, better terms. Okay, so what are the new terms? Well, in the new covenant, which we learn about in the New Testament, it tells us that there are still only two kinds of people. But it's not the religious and the irreligious like we see in 2 Kings 18. Under the new covenant of the blood of Jesus, the merely merely religious people and the irreligious people, they get lumped into one category together. It shifts. And there's no difference between them. Let me say it again because this is a super important idea if you're exploring Christianity. A very important distinction. Because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, there is no difference between merely religious people and irreligious people. Let me unpack that a little bit more for you, okay? In the new covenant that comes through the blood of Jesus on the cross, the two kinds of people are those who truly have Jesus and everyone else. Those who truly have Jesus and everyone else. There's a slide for that. Okay, good. The difference between these two groups is their motivation. I don't know if you can read that. I'll, I'll explain it for you. The motivation behind everyone else is to get stuff from God. So when it really comes down to it, religious people, they don't actually care about God. They may tell you with a whole lot of sincerity that they do, but in reality they don't. They care about getting stuff from God. So to give you some examples, maybe they're motivated by a fear of hell. Fear is a wonderful motivator, right? When I tell my children, I'm going to spank you, tend, generally they do what I'm requesting they do because fear is a fabulous motivator. And so there's a lot of people who are motivated by a fear of hell. I don't want to go to hell and suffer for eternity. That sounds awful. And so I'm going to be very religious and I'm going to do a lot of good things. And then at the end of my life, God is going to owe it to me to send me to heaven to spare me from hell. Or maybe they want to prosper like Hezekiah. They want to be successful. They want to have money. They want to have fame. They want to be well-known. So they do good. They do religious things. It's not on TV or in Hollywood, but maybe it's in a church, thinking that if they do enough good, then God will have to bless them. The term money in the bank, right? I'm just putting money in the bank so that when I stand before the throne of God, he'll owe it to me to bless me. Or maybe they want to go to heaven. They're, they're intrigued by this idea of heaven in a big mansion in a city with streets of gold. So they give money to the church and they act good so that, again, when they die, God has to take them away to heaven. They can pull out their check register and say, look, God, I gave a whole lot of money and I served a whole lot in the church and now you better give me heaven because that's what I deserve. And the goal of the merely religious person is to make it so that God owes them something because they are good. But when it really comes down to it, religious people, they don't actually care anything about God. They care about themselves. And for them, God is a means to help them prosper. He is a means to help them get what they want. And this is why it's almost never fun to hang around with, with just the religious people. You know, they're usually just kind of a drag, unfortunately. And, and I can't say for certain what Hezekiah's motivation was, 
But I do know that he understood the Old Testament covenant, which was this. Obey God, and he will make you prosper and give you good things. That's the Old Testament covenant. And disobey God, and he will curse you and destroy you for your disobedience. And Hezekiah was religious. Again, I don't know the motivation of his heart necessarily, but he was religious. He knew that according to the old covenant, his good behavior would bring about the favor of God. And his bad behavior would bring about curse and condemnation. That's how the old covenant worked. Now, irreligious people, they also, because I haven't covered them yet, they also fall under the everyone else category because their end goal is to advance themselves as well. And I think, yeah, that's up there too. Okay. Just rather than do that by appealing to God, like the religious person does, they just appeal to themselves. They are a God unto themselves, and they exercise their own will to extract from the world what they want from the world. Okay? They want to enjoy life, so they party. They want to feel important, so they pursue success. They want to feel loved, so they force themselves upon people. They want to satisfy their appetites, so they give themselves to pleasure. They want power, and so they manipulate people to get it. God's not in the equation at all, but the end goal is no different than that of the religious person, the merely religious person. What can I do to advance my position? What can I do for myself? How can I get what I want? And so for both the religious person and the irreligious person, it's all about me, 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 me. At the center of their heart, at the center of the universe, at the center of everything, it's me, me, me. And so either God is a means to advance me, that's the religious person, God is the means to advance me, or the irreligious person, the world is the means to advance me. Okay? But to those who understand the new covenant of the blood of Jesus, these people, these people are something else entirely. They are not irreligious, but they're not just religious either. I think I've got a slide for that too, I hope. Instead, these people, they fall into a category of, of people who truly have and love Jesus, which is a radically different category. It's, it's not even categorizable, okay? Those who truly have Jesus, they want nothing more than Jesus himself. We're not trying to manipulate God so that God gives us things. We just, we're just trying to get more of God himself. And their goal is not to put God in their debt, but rather to honor God for the great debt that he has already paid for them on the cross. You see the difference there? And these people who are Christ followers, I like that term better because Christian, a lot of times these days, just, just tells you about religious people. Christ followers, they understand the parable of the treasure in the field. Maybe you've heard this one before. Matthew 14, 44. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, he's trying, to, he's trying to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like, and it's inexplicable. How do you do that? Well, Jesus is brilliant. So he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered it up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field so that he can own that treasure. 
Now, is the treasure in this story, is it just heaven? I know Jesus uses the term the kingdom of heaven is like, but is it just heaven where we get angels' wings and a golden harp and we just sit around, you know, making music forever? Is that the treasure, really? Is the treasure earthly riches? Is it a bigger house and a yacht and a nicer TV and a nicer car? Is it just earthly riches? Is the treasure the great cosmic jackpot where we put all of our dreams and wishes before God? This God who loves to gratify all of our personal desires? This genie God who we just rub the lamp and then he, he answers our wishes? Is that, the, is that what Jesus is talking about, this treasure? No, no, no. No, the treasure in the field is Jesus himself. It is Jesus himself. Jesus who is the one worth giving everything else up to have. Notice how the man in the story, what does he do? He keeps the treasure. He keeps the treasure because there's nothing that he could exchange this great treasure for that would be worth more than the great treasure itself. Do you see that? And if you have nothing else but Jesus, do you really believe that you have everything? If God gave you nothing more than just more of Jesus, would you still be happy? If everything that you prayed for, God responded and said, no, but I'll give you more of myself, would you be okay with that answer? Or better yet, what if God took everything from you so that he could give you more of Jesus? Would you still say, God, thank you? Would you be content? You know, one more short story to illustrate this. Elizabeth Elliot, she tells a parable in her book, These Strange Ashes. This is a work of fiction, okay? It's not in the Bible, but it centers around biblical characters. And it goes like this. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. And he didn't give any explanation. So the disciples looked around for a stone to carry. And Peter, being the practical sort, he sought out the smallest stone he could possibly find. Jesus didn't give any regulation for weight and size. So he picks up this pebble and he puts it in his pocket. Jesus then said, follow me. And he led them on a journey. And at about noontime, he had everybody sit down. And he waved his hands and he turned the stones into bread. And he said, now it's time for lunch. Peter pops that morsel of bread in his mouth and a few seconds later his lunch is over and when everybody else finished eating, Jesus tells him, stand up. And he says again, I'd like you to do something for me. I'd like you to carry a stone for me. And this time Peter says, I get it. I get it. So he looks around and he finds this boulder, you know, just barely small enough to carry. And he hoists it up on his back and it's painful and it's hard. And it makes him stagger, but he thinks to himself, I just, I can't wait for dinner. And then Jesus says, follow me. And he leads him on a journey with Peter, just barely being able to keep up, just struggling in the back, right? And around supper time, Jesus leads them to the side of the river and he says, now everyone throw your stones in the water. And they did. And then he says, follow me. And they began to walk again. And Peter and the others are looking at each other, just dumbfounded. And Peter is just scandalized. He's furious, right? And Jesus sighs and he says to Peter, don't you remember what I asked you to do, Peter? Who were you carrying the stone for? Were you carrying it because I asked you to or were you carrying it because you knew that you would get something out of it? 
And the lesson is simple, isn't it? Are, are, you, are you following Jesus because of what's in it for you? Or because Jesus has called you to follow him? You know, irreligious people, they say to Jesus, to heck with you. I have no interest in following you because I know that at the end of the day, you're not going to give me what I want, which is me, 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 me. They know that. Religious people follow, but the only question they have is, at the end of the trip, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? But people who love Jesus and they see the surpassing worth of the King of glory, who poured out his infinite love on the cross by spilling his blood for us to redeem us, those people who know this Jesus, they just want Jesus. And so let me say to you this morning, you, those of you who call yourselves Christians, if you're doing this for any other reason than Jesus, then all you are is, irreligi- or is religious. If you're doing it for any other reason than for Jesus, then all you are is religious. And you're missing out on the treasure in the field. I would say, yes, it's better to be religious and moral and ethical than irreligious, but being religious does not get you into the kingdom of heaven. Being religious does not save your soul. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus, by his blood, can do that. And he promises to bless you both in this life and the life to come by giving you more of himself as you can take more and more measure from him. In his book uh, to pastors called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, John Piper, he asks this question. I'm going to read it twice because the way he words it is tricky. He says, who, in the end, is the all-satisfying treasure that we are given by the love of God? Self or God? Who, in the end, is the all-satisfying treasure that we are given by the love of God? Self or God? In other words, what's your reason for following after Jesus? Is it to get more for you or is it to get more Jesus? Now, we're going to take communion this morning, and the way we do that uh, at Maricopa Springs is by intinction. So there's a lot of people here. We've also got the potluck going on, so we only have one table. Um, but uh, I'm going to have the worship team come up here in a minute after I pray, and they're going to lead us in some singing, some worship through singing. And you're invited, uh, if, if Jesus is your Lord, to make your way to the table in the back of the room when you're ready. And at the table, you're going to find bread, and you'll find several different cups. Some are wine, some are grape juice, whatever your preference is. And you're just going to tear off a piece, dunk it in the wine or the grape juice, and you can just eat it right there, okay? Because the process goes pretty fast, I encourage you to take some time before you go to the table. Take some time. Spend some time praying and, uh, and, and seeking God. And I want to ask you as you do that, as you pray and as you confess before God, You know, to just think about these ideas, as much as we say that we are in this for Jesus, we are sinners. And often, even starting with the best intentions, we end up pursuing Jesus for personal gain. We have great intentions when we begin, but we become wayward. So this is a great opportunity to just ground yourself, center yourself on Christ again, and just say, you know what, God, I've, I've started following you because of what's in it for me. Bring me back to following you for, what, uh, for, for greater portions of you. 
And I think one of the reasons why God gave us the communion table was to help us refocus our hearts in this way, to remind us that Jesus bled to death on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. And he faced the rejection of God the Father, the penalty for our sins. I mean, that was the worst thing. It wasn't the beating and the bleeding and the suffering and the death that really got Jesus. That was not what he was afraid of as he went to the cross, although I imagine that that must have been unimaginable. What really crushed him was the fact that God would look upon him and see your sins and it would break the relationship between God and Jesus for a moment. But in God's grace and in his power and in his holiness and his perfection, God used that moment to redeem your life so that you could know the treasure of being in a relationship with God. And so as you taste the wine and the bread in your mouth, and you remember that this symbol means that he died for you, may you also be filled, I pray, with an overwhelming hunger for Jesus and a penetrating sense of how truly satisfying he is. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your blood, Jesus. We thank you for your body that was sacrificed so that we might be redeemed. And God, we know in our heart of hearts that the greatest thing in this world is to have more of you. And help us live by that, I pray, God. Help that be true of who we are and the way that we act, and the way that we live. And God, in this moment, would you give us more of you? Would you increase our capacity to have more of you? And would you fill us up again to overflowing? Would you give our hearts an insatiable hunger for Jesus? And yet, would you also give us a penetrating sense of how satisfying you are so that we feel satisfied in Christ? And we worship you now for the God that you are who redeemed us out of sin, who gave up everything so that we could have everything, who has revealed to us the treasure available to us in your son, Jesus. And we praise your name. Amen.